Good to see everyone here this morning, and as you can see, we are surrounded by outer space because we are headed there this week for Vacation Bible School, and I would love for you to be a part of it and your family if they're not already planning to. We begin tomorrow, and it, we're looking forward to a great time. Every year, we are blessed with kids who come. Every year, there are kids who trust Christ for the first time, so please, you be in prayer for us uh, this week as we minister to these young people and uh, just pray that God does a great work. I would invite you today to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk. Now I know for a second that's like, all right, where is that? Well, let's go over a few things. So inside your worship God, hopefully that you were handed when you came in, um, there's a couple of things. If you're our guest today, by the way, we'd love to have a record of your visit there's this little tab that you can fill out and tear off, and you fold it up, and you can leave it in your seat, or you can put it in the drop box as you go out, and that would allow us to celebrate your presence with us here today. And uh, if you don't know who I am, I'm, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad that you're worshiping here with us. Also, inside, it's a bookmark. Why are you getting a bookmark? Because a it's a little hard to find. Um, so perhaps if uh, you memorized the books of the Bible as a kid, that you know where to find it. So like open your Bible in the middle. You probably hit Psalms or Isaiah. Keep going to the right. And if you hit Daniel, keep going. If you hit Matthew, you've gone too far. But once you find Habakkuk, it's only three chapters there in the Old Testament. And hey, got you a bookmark. We're going to be in Habakkuk for some time, uh, for a few weeks. So Take this bookmark, put it there. That way you only have to find it once, and next Sunday, you just know it's there. Also, if you don't have your Bible with you, that's okay. It'll be on the screen, or if you're just using your phone or your tablet or whatever it is that you use, just click on it, and you'll be there, and it will be perfect. But today, I want to talk to you about the prophet Habakkuk. Now, the prophet Habakkuk falls in what is called the minor prophets. So in the Old Testament... We've got a breakdown of different prophets, and there's the major prophets and the minor prophets. But it's not like major league, minor league that we would think like in baseball. Like, oh man, this prophet is a triple A prophet. And then you got single A down here. No, 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 no. It's just not like that at all. Major and minor have to do with the size of the scroll. So keep in mind, we have all of our books and, you know, leather bound copies or hardback or paperback or on the, our digital device. Well, back in the day, they would have had big scrolls. And the bigger the scroll, the more paper required, the more it weighed. So the major prophets were big scrolls, meaning these, these brothers had lots to say. And so Isaiah, Jeremiah, those are the big boys, the major prophets. But then you have the minor prophets or the book of the 12. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, the minor prophets are not broken down individually as uniquely as they are in our English Bible. It was just the book of the 12. It was the scroll of the 12, and the minor prophets would have all been on one scroll, essentially. So Habakkuk is one of those minor prophets. If you'll look in the book, there's only three chapters to Habakkuk. But let's talk a little bit more about prophets in general. What are prophets? Well, a prophet is someone who speaks to people on God's behalf. They stand in God's presence. God speaks to them, reveals to them what he wants them to say. And then they go and then they speak that word to the people. For instance, in our grow group time that I just got through with, we talked about the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was a prophet who got words from God. In fact, he tells God, I, I'm not going to know what to say. And God is saying, listen, I'm going to give you the words. That's what a prophet is, someone who gets the words from God and then takes it and brings it to the people, which is very different than a priest. A priest is different. A priest is someone who takes the concerns of the people and the cares of the people and brings them to God. A priest represents uh, the people before God, and a prophet represents God before the people. So Jesus is prophet, priest, and one more. He is king. But in looking at Habakkuk, Habakkuk is a prophet. So that means he is someone who speaks to the people on God's behalf. 
but he's a unique prophet, and we're going to talk about why he's unique here in just a second. But one more thing uh, about Habakkuk. It's important to know when this man lived, because in order to understand the message in his writing, it's important to understand what was going on in the world at that time. So in talking about Habakkuk today, we're going to read his three-part, three-chapter book here in just a second. Um, It's important to know what was going on in the world at his time and why he was saying what he is saying. So I'm going to read Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The word of our Lord says this, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise so the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. So the title of this series that we're doing is Habakkuk, a meditation on justice in a world gone mad. I want to talk to you today about how literally Habakkuk's world had gone crazy. The moral compass had been completely distorted during Habakkuk's life and things are spiraling out of control morally, culturally, religiously during Habakkuk's day, and he is talking to God. In fact, my little subcategory, and we're going to address this next week, I love what the bold print, the subject heading in my copy of the Lord's Word says. It says, Habakkuk's complaint. Habakkuk's complaint, which really gets into our first principle. But before we go there, I want to talk to you about our main statement. Habakkuk loved his country. Habakkuk loved his country and he loved his people. There's some hard things that are said in this book. But one thing that is overwhelmingly obvious is he loved his people. He loved his country. You know, that's something that we can learn from today as Christian people One of the things that Christians are notoriously known for is pointing the finger at culture, pointing the finger at everyone else, almost at times in a hateful way. But Habakkuk is motivated not by hate or judgmentalism, but out of love. Habakkuk loves his country, and he's deeply disturbed with what he has seen has happened in his country's culture and in the kingdom, and he is bringing this as a complaint to God because Habakkuk's world is spiraling out of control. And his question to God is, okay, God, why aren't you doing something about this? Because even I know that what's going on is bad. Why don't you act? This is his complaint. So Habakkuk is a different kind of prophet. Principle number one, Habakkuk is a different kind of prophet. Remember I shared with you, prophets represent God to the people. Priests represent the people to God. So for instance, if you're, as you're studying Jeremiah in your grow groups, if you're on the Explore the Bible uh, track, Jeremiah preaches to the people. He preaches repentance to the people. He gives people the words of God, announcing judgment, all of those things. Habakkuk is not like that at all. Habakkuk is not one who is announcing anything to the people on behalf of God. Rather, Habakkuk has one role. He complains. And he complains to God. In fact, somebody's like, this is the book of the Bible for me. All right? This is all Habakkuk is, is one massive complaint to God about what is going on and why God is not acting in the way that Habakkuk thinks he should act. So with that much said already, this book is set to minister to my heart and your heart because I know there are things not just in our nation, but things in your life and in your family and among your friends and your business. There are things that happen that seem wrong, 
unfair and crooked and it bothers you deeply and somewhere in the back of your mind there is a question of well God why don't you do something about this it seems like hell's just having a heyday why don't you act and do something and this is Habakkuk's book it's just a complaint to God about why God is not fixing the world and preventing the world from sliding or at least Habakkuk's world into greater disaster So apply that personally to you, your family, your workplace, your relationships, the nation. It's a complaint. Lord, why why is it that it seems that wickedness and evil seems to prosper? And the things of God just seem to slide into further and further compromise. So this is Habakkuk. So Habakkuk is a different kind of prophet. Rather than speaking to the people for God... He spoke to God for the people. So instead of being a preacher, he's a prayer, but he's a complaining prayer. He complains as he prays, and that's what the whole book is. So the book is meant to be a meditation. Habakkuk is a meditation and a lamentation. You can hear both of those things. Meditate is to think on these things. To meditate is to sit quietly, pondering the Word of God, pondering life and the situation around you, and it means to chew. The the word um, meditation literally means to chew. So what we want to do through this is kind of chew on Habakkuk, all right? Mull it over in our minds, and allow his thoughts, Habakkuk's thoughts, and wrestling with the injustices he saw in his world to be a part of ours. Now, it led Habakkuk to lamentation. You can see a lament is, it is an outcry because of trouble. A lament is releasing sorrow from your heart. Lord, why is this so? You can hear the lament in Habakkuk's voice. So he's meditating on what's going on. He's lamenting what is going on. So Habakkuk is a different kind of prophet. He's not a preacher. He's a complaining prayer. And the whole book is about his conversation with God. Principle number two. Habakkuk understood that Israel was a nation chosen by God. In order for us to appreciate Habakkuk's prayer and his complaints and his plight... We need to get inside Habakkuk's world. Habakkuk would have understood and believed that Israel was a nation chosen by God. In Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, his ancestor, Abram, later Abraham, was called to be a great nation. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Habakkuk would have known this. This was his grandfather Abraham. Habakkuk knew that Israel was a nation chosen by God. This is what adds to this grieving lamentation. He knows, listen, I see what's going on, but I know God chose us. Not only did Habakkuk know that Israel was chosen by God, the next thing, Habakkuk understood that Israel was a nation established by God. Not just did God choose them to use them, God literally established them as a nation. Israel was in captivity, as you know, in Egypt, enslaved, and God powerfully did miracles and did wonders in Egypt in order that the people and the children of Israel might be freed from Egypt and in order they might be established as a nation. Israel was strongly delivered by God from Egypt through Moses. Exodus 3, 9 through 10, this is God speaking to Moses, articulates what's going to happen. And now behold... The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Habakkuk knew this. He knew Israel had been not just chosen by God, but established as a nation through the ministry of Moses. 
but also not just established as a nation, but literally established in the land itself through another servant. Israel was thoroughly established in the land through a guy named Joshua. Joshua, another prophet. Moses was a prophet. His protege, Joshua, became a prophet after him and led the people. Joshua 23, 1 through 3, speaks of what happened during Joshua's lifetime. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel and its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Here's what Joshua is saying. Make no mistake. The reason we have had success in driving out these other peoples and we are able to take this Canaan land and make it the land of Israel is because God has blessed us. He's blessed you people. And he says, listen, now I'm dying. Don't forget who established you as a nation. Israel was established as a nation by God through the prophet Moses, through the prophet Joshua. But also, not only did Habakkuk understand this, Habakkuk understood that not only was the nation chosen and established, but the nation was preserved by God. Come hell and high water, through it all, the nation was preserved by God. And this is the world that Habakkuk would have lived in. He would have known that after Joshua died, everybody kind of just did what they wanted to because Israel didn't have a king yet. In fact, Israel entered a season without a king. After Joshua died. And look at this verse in the book of Judges. It says this. Judges 21-25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It sounds great as long as you're making the choices. But what happens when everybody is making the same choices at the same time? Just doing whatever it is they want to do. It's chaos. And Habakkuk knew that after prophet Moses, prophet prophet Moses and prophet Joshua died... You know what? God preserved our nation even when we didn't have a leader. And in the book of Judges, he raises up different judges to help with that time. Not only that, Habakkuk would have known that not only was the nation preserved during a time without a king and without government, Israel was preserved and had endured the failure of her first king, King Saul. Israel had endured the failure of Saul, her first king. Perhaps you know the story of King Saul. He was a Benjamite. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, raised up to be their first king. He started out so well and ended in unmitigated disaster. Ending his, one of his last acts was consulting a witch at night to call up a ghost. You're like, what? Yeah. He had ended his reign because he had turned his heart away from the Lord And he sought to take things into his own hands. And his kingship turned out to be a disaster. And in fact, Paul, not Paul, King Saul is slain in battle and Israel loses the battle which he dies in. But God had preserved Israel even through that disastrous first king. Not only that, God raised up the next king. You know that, it's King David. Of course, we know God preserved Israel during King David, but we often forget what Kings. David's life entailed. Israel endured multiple civil wars during David's kingship. You see, when David became king, he was not Saul's son. David became king, and then all of a sudden there was a civil war between the house of Saul and the house of David. David was from the tribe of Judah. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So there was fighting and warring for seven long years of civil war. You can see up here on the screen, right here, this is a timeline. If you look over here, that's King Saul right here. This is King David, the next king. This is King Solomon, David's son. And here we're going to talk about it in a minute when the kingdom is split in north and south. But another thing to see here on this graph, it's color-coded. The, the red color-coded are the kings that are called to have done evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, the yellow is, it's mixed, that they had extended seasons of wickedness and extended seasons of, of godliness. And then the green ones are good kings, not sinless kings, 
because David is in green, but he certainly had problems. But his heart was always postured toward the Lord. We knew who David's God was. But we'll come back to that graph here in just a second. But Israel endured multiple civil wars during David's kingship. David versus the house of Saul. And then David's own son, Absalom, started a civil war against his dad. And then after that was crushed, when David was still alive as an old man, he had two sons that wanted to be king, one King Solomon and another King Adonijah. And David's two sons fought. Of course, it uh, didn't really work out for Adonijah. It was a very short-lived thing. But David's life and reign was marked by civil wars. And Habakkuk would have known that. And Habakkuk would have known, you know what? Even in the midst of civil war, God preserved a people and preserved his temple, which was in Jerusalem. Um, Israel, or actually the temple would have not been the tabernacle at that point. The next thing is Israel endured the catastrophic excesses of King Solomon. Israel endured the catastrophic excesses of King Solomon. Before we put the scripture up, go back to that screen there for just a second. Uh, king Solomon is right here. He is the last king of the United Kingdom. King Solomon, and perhaps you know about King Solomon. He wrote Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. He is said to have been one of the wisest men, the wisest man who ever lived in the scripture. He was fabulously wealthy, very successful. He wrote songs, poems. He was incredible at everything he did, and he loved having lots of wives. In fact, he had a lot of them. He had uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a lot of ladies to have in your life. Um, I got my hair cut not too long ago, and um, a lady asked me how many children I had, and I said, oh, I have six, and one's in heaven. She said, six kids, really? I said, yeah. She said, well, how many wives? So I said, oh, uh, one. But she's like, wow, good for you. But, um, but Solomon had 700 of them, and then 300 concubines. So lots of women in his life. But here is the thing that you need to see from this story. And it's another thing that I would be, I hate to like meddle in your life. Because I want the Holy Spirit to meddle in your life, not Matt. But if I could just say a quick word here. I think this next scripture from 1 Kings we're about to read is why it's so vitally important not to marry and not to date someone who doesn't know the Lord. Because to think that binding your life together in a covenant with someone who is not in like-minded agreement with who their God is, is you, is short-sighted. Because if Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, had his heart pulled away because of his wives, it certainly can happen to us because of our spouses, wives, or husbands. Look at uh, 1 Kings 11, 4-8. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after their gods. By the way, it's not a bad thing to want to please your wife. In Solomon's case, though, pleasing his wives meant turning his heart away from God. That's the problem. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, for it as was the heart of David, his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place. And by the way, a high place is just an artificial mountain or using a hill that's already there to build an altar to a false god. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, or Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for this is unbelievable, for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. By the way, Molech, to participate in worship in his temples, you would offer your children. This is the man who built God's temple, and here he's allowing to please his wives. I guess in the name of, uh, I don't know what, religious liberty or something, that, hey, well, we've got to have a house for worship in Israel for everybody. And, oh, my goodness, on the mountains east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives 
who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. When we see this story, we see that Solomon's heart is pulled away. And because of this, let's go back to the screen again. As the result of this wickedness and idolatry, the result of the excesses and evils of Solomon's reign, Israel was torn into two kingdoms through a civil war. Let's go back to the screen. You have right here, they're, they're torn away. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom retains Jerusalem. And these, these are the sons of David. These are the sons of Jeroboam, who was one of the servants of Solomon. Now, I want you to see something. You've got the northern kingdom, which is 10 tribes. The southern kingdom, which is two tribes. Look right here. How many of these are green or yellow? Zero. What does that mean? This was a motley crew. These guys were rough. In fact, I think one of the ones that is the most bizarre is, I believe, uh, Zimri and Omri, who like were king for seven days and just set the palace on fire to watch it burn. Okay. Yeah. Then you have wicked King Ahab. So much. It got so bad. Here's what I want to point out. As a result of Solomon's introduction of all this wickedness, the northern kingdom got so bad. Keep in mind, God has promised to Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. But it got so bad that finally it reached a point with God where God was like, I'm not dealing with this anymore. The northern kingdom of Israel fell into ruin over 200 years under wicked kings, and they were taken into captivity at the hands of the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Now you're like, oh, I know about this. The, the Babylonian captivity, and they were there for 70 years, and then it came back. Uh-uh. That's the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was taken into captivity, and they stayed there. They were just gone. God was like, Y'all are so ridiculous, so out of control, and you have done so much evil that I am dispersing you and I am not regathering you. That's how bad it was. Now, the writers of the scripture, 2 Kings 17, 5 through 18, this is going to be a longer passage, but I want you to see this. I want you to hear because they want you to understand why is it that God, after making the promises to Abraham, would let 10 tribes go? Because this is how bad it got. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria. By the way, Samaria is the capital of that northern kingdom, Israel. And for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halal on the harbor in the river of Gozan in the cities of the Medes. By the way, he's like, I've never really heard of Assyria its capital, you know its capital city, is Nineveh. And this occurred because the people, this is, this is the key statement here, the biblical authors want you to understand why would God let this kind of disaster happen. This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced and the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right they built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city they set up for themselves pillars and Asherim on every high hill and under every green tea, green tree, and they were they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did before the Lord carried away before them, and they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger, and they served idols which the Lord had said to them, "You shall not do this." Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by saying, by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. But they were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers 
and the warnings that he gave them. And they went after false idols and became false and followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight None was left but the tribe of Judah only. That was a mouthful. What does it mean? God finally said, I've had enough of this. And I'm not going to let you hurt yourselves, your children, and the other nations around you, and to prostitute my name in the earth anymore. I'm going to allow you to be taken into captivity. But now what's interesting, even though that happened, the southern kingdom had trouble too. But God raised up a godly king. The southern kingdom, Judah, had a mixture of godly kings and wicked kings. And by the way, our guy Habakkuk is from the southern kingdom. But one godly king named Hezekiah led the people of Judah to spiritual revival and reformation. Let me read to you about about Hezekiah. 2 Kings 18, 3-5. This is good king Hezekiah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that David his father had done, he removed the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel made offerings to it, calling it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. So because of this, God did not allow the Assyrians to overthrow Hezekiah and the kingdom of Judah and preserved his people in Jerusalem and his temple. Let's go back to the screen here. Right here, this is where the king of Assyria comes And he crushes the northern kingdom. And after crushing them, he goes south to Judah, and Hezekiah is king. But Hezekiah has brought about religious reform, and the nation experienced revival. They kicked out all of the wickedness, broke down the false altars. And because of the actions of Hezekiah, God had mercy on Judah and did not allow Assyria to conquer Judah at that time. If only the story had ended there. But the problem is, not Hezekiah, but Hezekiah's son. Hezekiah's son Manasseh, after Hezekiah died, undid all his father's reform and led Judah into idolatry and evil. In fact, Manasseh was said to have brought so much evil and violence into Judah that there was literally puddles of blood and pools of blood in the streets from all of the abuses and the violence that took place under Manasseh's reign. Now, I know you're looking here like, uh, his name is Yellow, Manasseh, like explain that. Well, Manasseh, because he's so wicked, God allows Manasseh himself to be taken into captivity into Babylon and locked in chains and there Manasseh humbles himself before God greatly and asks for forgiveness and the amazing compassion of God. One ounce of repentance goes a long, long way. And even after all the wickedness Manasseh had done, when he turned himself towards God, God restored King Manasseh, led him out of jail, and brought him back into Judah. But the problem was the deed had been done. Listen to the words about Manasseh. 2 Kings 21, 2 through 6. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah's father destroyed and he erected altars for the Baals and made an Asherah. And as Ahab, king of Israel, had done and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them and he built altars in the house of the Lord and 
of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem, I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his own son, y'all, as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. And he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Manasseh brought such wickedness. The Asherah pole, which is a huge representation of a phallus, he puts in the temple of God, desecrating the temple of God with all of that perversion and wickedness. Then, let's go back to our chart here. Manasseh has a son, Amnon. He's just as bad as his dad. But then there's a grandson, Josiah. In fact, I bet there might be somebody here named Josiah. Your name might be Manasseh, but we, not a whole lot of Manassehs out there. Let's just be honest. Um, and if it is, there's another good character in the Old Testament. He was thumbs up. Joseph's son, his name was Manasseh. You were named after that one. All right. But then there's Josiah. Josiah became king when he was eight years old. Eight years old. And an amazing thing, Josiah said, hey, I would like for us to do some repairs to the temple. So the priests get it to get the temple and they start doing repairs. And they like open a closet somewhere and they find a Bible. It's amazing. It's literally the scroll of Deuteronomy. And they're like, look what we discovered. It's, it's like the word of God. And so they, they read it to Josiah. And Josiah realizes all the wickedness his people has done. And he tears his clothes. And he brings about the greatest religious revival and reform that Judah ever saw. Even exceeding what took place under Hezekiah. And God honored that with material blessings. Material blessings and prosperity flowed from his reforms. I want to read to you 2 Kings 23, 24-25. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers, those are witches and fortune tellers and those who consult the dead, and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord, Deuteronomy. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his mind, and according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. He turned his heart towards God. They started observing Passover. They started observing the feasts. They got rid of all the high places. They started reading the Bible. And then guess what? Josiah goes into battle and dies unexpectedly. It's one of the great ironies in the Bible. Why is it that you have wicked kings like Manasseh that rule for 50 plus years and the good die young? It's one of the great ironies. Josiah dies. Let's go back to our chart. And then he has some loser kids because they take them right back into idolatry. In fact, the first one Jehoaz was so bad, he only ruled for a couple of months, and then Egypt was like, you're terrible, and they came and put him in jail and let his brother um, Jehoiakim lead, and these are the sons of Josiah. It's just an absolute mess. Now, why is this important? Habakkuk is born during this time. Habakkuk is born during a time of revival and reform. But once Josiah dies unexpectedly, they bury him, and he's not even in the ground. There's not even grass growing on his grave yet. And the nation falls apart, and wickedness goes everywhere. And these last four kings of Judah were so wicked, and they added a newfound wickedness. They started persecuting the people and the followers of Yahweh. They started not just practicing evil, but persecuting people who sought to do good and worship the Lord. And this is where Habakkuk is. Now, it's an unusual time because it's still, because of the good choices of Josiah, there is material prosperity that is being enjoyed. But there's so much wickedness that is going on, and the kings of Israel or Judah now are making the people of God the enemy. 
You see, during this season, Judah's own kings became very corrupt and persecuted the prophets and the followers of Yahweh. And it was a time of great material prosperity, but moral bankruptcy. Habakkuk lives in this moment. He's old enough to remember what godly leadership looked like under Josiah. Yet he looks out and he sees, now hear his words with all of this information now. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you not hear? Or cry to you violence and you not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk has lived in a time when it was done right. And now it is utterly falling apart all over again. And he is saying, God... Why are you letting it happen all over again? There's no doubt in my mind. Why did you let King Josiah die? He shouldn't have died. Now look where we are. Why is this, Lord, why don't you do something about all the evil? It seems like we are spiraling out of control. When I think about Habakkuk, and I will close with this, because we're not ending on a real positive note this week. But don't worry, it's a series. There's positive news to come. Uh, Because if you've ever wondered where the New Testament gets the just shall live by faith, it's Habakkuk. When I think about Habakkuk, and I also think about where we are as a people and a culture. Now, I want to be careful not to paint one of the things that I think as Christian people we do is that we have an, a way of painting with glory and rose-colored glasses previous generations of Americans and just saying, listen, if only we could be like them and how things used to be and ignore the injustices that they had in their own generation. But I don't think it is a stretch for me to say when you are right now in 2023 looking out at where our world is headed and the trajectory and the speed of the moral confusion which is taking place in our time and it seems like it is going unchecked. Can you hear the words of Habakkuk say? Back at God, aren't you going to stop this? Y'all, I was born in 1984. I have had a magical childhood. I have lived in a prosperous nation. We are so spoiled in our day and time. I have a little robot that runs around my front yard and mows for me. I'm spoiled, y'all. But when I think, not about technological advancement, but the moral heartbeat of where we are, I grieve for my country. I want to be very careful here how I say this. You've heard the statement, love the sinner, hate the sin. Um, I understand that, but it seems like a whole lot of love the sinner, hate the sin just turns into hating the sinner too. God loves the world. God loves the world more than you and me. God loves everyone. Uh, So a better way of saying that is love the sinner and hate your own sin. It's a real vogue thing to want to blame Washington, D.C. and point up there that, uh, you know, I hear things. The best thing that ever happened to America is just that that city just needs to go away. We'll be rid of all our problems. They just go away. Folks, those people are only there because we put them there. Those people are a reflection of who we are as a nation. And there is a tendency and a temptation for us as Christian people to say, yeah, it's their fault. It's their fault. Or it's that group's fault or this group's fault. Don't do that. Don't do that. Habakkuk loved his nation. 
He loved his nation, and we should love ours. You should love your president, love your vice president, love your Congress, love your judges, love your neighbors, love, love them all, and pray for them. That means you like, doesn't mean you like everything. But I think like Habakkuk, there is something that I am literally terrified of what the future will look like for my children and my grandchildren because there is so much confusion. Um, I want to say this. Don't take this in the wrong way because I've already told you this is not me pointing fingers at groups. Hey, if Reformation needs to start anywhere, let it start in my own heart and life. I don't think the church's problems are. We always need to deal here and let God deal out there. But this week, um, uh, I'm going to have a subscription service to one of our channels that put cartoon movies out. And I've watched these cartoons since I'm a kid, know all the theme songs and go to their theme parks and all that and love it. It's just wonderful. Magical childhood, a very magical place. And I got an email this week because I'm a subscriber to their subscription service. And it was not just pointing out Let me try to think of the best way to say this. It was a celebration of the month of pride. And I think it grieved me in a different way this time. I don't blame my neighbors. And I don't, I don't hate uh, the LGBTQ plus community. I love them. In fact, they're pretty easy to love often if you know them personally. Um, but my heart was so deeply disturbed and broken that this place where we're at is where the people who are teaching our children values through their media are celebrating something that is so contrary to the design of God and celebrating it loudly. And it grieves my heart. I'm not calling for boycotts. I'm not, I'm, if you, I've been your pastor seven years. You know I'm not that guy. Um, and I'm not blaming the organization because again, they sell what sells. And that's a reflection of where we are as a nation. And um, it just broke my heart. And I, think, I don't think it was what it is, but the loud celebration of something that is just contrary to God's design. And it made me grieve for my children, my grandchildren, and it made me fearful for my country. Again, I'm not talking about the actions of LGBTQ plus people. I'm talking about the celebration of it. And I look at this and I think of Habakkuk's plight. And like Habakkuk, and I'm not just focusing, I, I want to be so careful because I already feel bad for pointing this out because it's like, oh, well, you want to point out that, that issue? Well, why don't you start with your own sins? Y'all, we could talk about Matt Powell's sins all day long. I'm saying let it start here. But God forbid as a people, we get to a place where we're celebrating things that are contrary to the ways of God. That is where we are as a people. So closing thought, you're alive today because God wanted you to be alive today. And God has a mission for you to be alive right now, to show people his love, grace, and forgiveness and restoring and healing power that is found in his name. So it's no mistake that we're all here, but we should be attentive to the times 
It's just an indication of where our hearts are. And my heart, my desire, I mean, being born in 1984, I remember as a little boy, eight years old, driving on a bus to Atlanta and going to a Billy Graham crusade and just standing in awe as people came to Christ left and right, weeping. And that, in my mind, seems unheard of now. And it hurts my heart because I love our country and I love our church and I want God to do a work in us. So if you heard me pointing fingers at the world today, you miss what I'm saying. If we're going to point the finger, let it point here. I'm not even going to point it to you. I'm going to say, let it start with me. Um, but if we think about where we are, there is much to lament over. And there's much to meditate on. And I want you to, I guess, leave you with this. I didn't do this in the first service. King Manasseh was the worst of the bunch. Even killed his own son. He turned his heart towards God. And God was so merciful and restored him. God is so merciful, you all. Just a ounce, just a smidgen of repentance. Just a smidgen of, Lord, I'm sorry. And God can do wonderful things. Don't be proud of your sin. Call it what it is. And pray for your nation. Don't miss the rest of this series. It does get worse next week. But it gets better as the series goes on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for who you are. And Lord, I love my country. I love my neighbors. Lord, I love our president, our vice president, our Congress, our judges. Lord, I love the people of this nation. And Lord, you and I both know I am not saying that. I genuinely love these people. Lord, I love uh, the progressives. Lord, I love the conservatives. Lord, I love the LGBTQ plus community. Lord, and I love all of them because you love them. And Lord, we love because you first loved us. But Lord, I am so burdened for our culture and our country and my own heart. And Lord, I pray you would make us sensitive and not hard-hearted. You would make us soft-hearted towards you. And that we would meditate on who you are. And that, Lord, that we would not live in a time of decline, but, Lord, let us be alive during a time of restoration. I ask this in Jesus' name.